From PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Public opinion may seem divided, but Americans do love their national parks, and a survey finds they'd pay more taxes to protect them. Could we quantify the fact that I might place a value on protecting the Grand Canyon, even if I don't visit, that that still means something to me? We were amazed to find that the value was $92 billion, which is more than 30 times what the annual appropriation for the parks is. Also, birds, bees, and butterflies aren't just pretty. They pollinate many of the plants that feed us. Squash, pumpkin, zucchini are actually all pollinated by these squash bees. And these bees expanded its range dramatically thanks to the cultivation of crops outside of the native range of the plants that are not domesticated. Native Americans, the squash bee, and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Ryan Zinke's Interior Department and the President are reassessing the size and status of some 27 national monuments, but Americans are overwhelmingly in favor of public lands. Indeed, taxpayers seem prepared to actually pay to support the national parks. That's what Linda Bilmes of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and colleagues from Colorado State University discovered when they carefully surveyed taxpayers. Their research shows that the public would pay more than $90 billion a year to preserve and protect iconic places from Acadia to Zion. Congress typically grants the U.S. national park system less than $3 billion a year, and there's a multi-billion dollar backlog of corroded or broken infrastructure. Professor Linda Bilmes is also a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Administration and Budget, and we joined her in her office at Harvard. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. What prompted you to do this study? I was lucky enough to serve on the Second Century Commission. It was a group of prominent Americans, including Sandra Day O'Connor, Sylvia Earle, Rita Colwell, James McPherson of Princeton, and a number of senators and congressmen. And we were thinking about how to protect the national parks over the next 100 years. And one of the conclusions that we reached was that the financial picture was not sustainable given the way that the national parks are funded at the moment. So in order to begin thinking about creating a more sustainable financial structure for the national parks, we needed to establish a baseline for what the parks were actually worth. And actually, no one had done this before. So this led me to begin thinking about how one could estimate the total economic value of the National Park Service and to do it in time for the centennial. Now, some would say that our national parks are priceless. You can't put a price on something like the Grand Canyon or the Grand Teton. So what you're talking about, I gather, is the capital value of this, that is, as an asset that America should look at. It's not really for sale. No, it's not for sale. But you raise a very important point, which is how do we actually value a priceless asset? And economists do this by asking what one would pay not to lose that asset. So in the conservation field, we are particularly at a disadvantage because there is a very robust, well-established accounting procedure for figuring out what 
the value is of constructing a building, for example. But there's no agreed-on methodology for how one accounts for not constructing a building for protecting the land. So how do you solve this dilemma? Well, we used a methodology similar to that used by civilian U.S. agencies, such as the Food and Drug Administration and OSHA. And we conducted an economic survey. So I want to stress that this was not a poll, but an economic survey in which we went out and asked households what they would pay to not lose the National Park Service units and programs. Surveys were sent out to households across the country and with different amounts of money on them. And so we could figure out that at the higher levels of payment, fewer people would be willing to pay, even if they love the parks. And at the lower levels, for example, $10, $15, practically everyone was willing to pay that much in higher taxes. And we're not advocating higher taxes for parks, but this was a way of getting at what the value was that the public attributes to protecting the parks and park programs. So some 90, 95% in your study said that these parks are important. I mean, what else are we unanimous about as Americans these days? Well, I think that there are very few entities and public assets that command this kind of respect and really love that we heard in this survey. But I think beyond that, what we felt we were trying to do was to understand how people who didn't necessarily visit the parks felt about the parks and the programs. Because we already knew that those who visit the parks typically love them, and many surveys show that a lot of people like the parks very much, they think they're wonderful. But the question was, could we quantify the fact that I might place a value on protecting Gettysburg or protecting Ellis Island or protecting the Grand Canyon, even if I don't visit, that that still means something to me. And that's where we were amazed to find that the value was $92 billion, which is more than 30 times what the annual appropriation for the parks is. So what is being spent on the Park Service now, and what does it mean? Well, the Park Service currently gets an annual appropriation of about $2.5 billion a year. And the Park Service budget has actually been declining over the past 20 years. In fact, it's 15% below, in today's dollars, what it was in 2001. In addition, the Park Service has a maintenance backlog of about $12 billion. And that is a backlog of infrastructure projects, for example, campgrounds and trails and bridges and roads and things like that. So not only is the annual appropriation insufficient to cover its needs, but it has been completely unable to finance its long-term infrastructural maintenance needs. So in other words, the national parks, as they are currently funded, are decaying because of the fact that we're not keeping them up. And yet the public is willing to spend much, much more, almost 30 times more than what the annual appropriation is. So why are we in this state? Well, I would say that there are two major points around the national park funding. First of all, our study shows that the public places a very high value on the parks. And so we are urging Congress to give some amount of money to begin tackling the maintenance backlog for the parks. But when you think about the broader issue, which is that the public is conservatively valuing the parks 
at $92 billion, and the amount that we spend on the parks, even including fees and so forth, is below $3 billion. There's no way that the government is going to be able to make up that huge gap. So this is where private philanthropy comes in. And there is a National Park Foundation, which has operated for a number of years. The private philanthropy has played a role in shoring up many individual parks. However, we don't have an overall philanthropic, long-term, perpetuity funding structure for the parks. So I have been urging for some time that we set up an endowment for the parks, which is a funding mechanism that Harvard University has, for example, and many museums and hospitals and others that have a kind of forever mission. Because the mission of the parks is to protect these special places unimpaired forever. And the only way that they can do that is if they have an endowment which they can tap into to try and make the investments and keep up with the long-term maintenance, repair, and stewardship, which is their mission. Your favorite park or parks? You know, I have to say that I I grew up in San Mateo, California, and the Golden Gate National Recreation Area is probably my favorite because I know it best, but it stretches along the coast of San Francisco. It's a fantastic place, and it also does an enormous amount of educational efforts. I'm also very, very partial to Yosemite and to Yellowstone in the winter. Yellowstone Park, when it's empty in February and it's cold, is like no place on the planet. Linda Bilmos is the Daniel Patrick Moynihan Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. The nation's public lands stretch from Alaska to Florida, and given the wide variety of landscapes and temperatures, it's no surprise they give a refuge to an astonishing variety of bird life. And Mary McCann has today's bird note. The diversity and richness of bird voices across the United States. Wow! In the southeast, at Florida's Ocala National Forest, a Bachman sparrow sings a lovely, clear, whistled song. In the Midwest, at Rice Lake State Park in Minnesota, a yellow-headed blackbird offers its gruff repertoire of growls and toots. After dark in the Southwest, at Arizona's Bill Williams River National Wildlife Refuge, a black rail utters its unmistakable call. And in Alaska's Denali National Park, a willow ptarmigan chuckles loudly across the tundra. But all of these places have something vital in common. They are part of our national public lands, lands owned by us, the American people, comprising nearly 850 million acres of land and 3.5 million square miles of ocean our public lands and waters provide habitats vital to more than 1,000 species of birds. Now that's something to crow about. I'm Mary McCann. For photos of the willow ptarmigan and all those other birds, including the bald eagle, whistle on over to our website, LOE.org.
Coming up, how roadsides can help protect wildlife. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth, and I'm Steve Kerwood. In a minute, new facts about one of the busiest agricultural workers, but first this note on emerging science from Jay Feinstein. 80% of pesticides used in the U.S. are sprayed on agricultural sites, according to the EPA. Environmental advocates often argue this is partly responsible for the recent widespread decline of honeybees. Yet a new Purdue University study suggests that key to helping save these vital pollinators is what we do in our own backyards. Scientists found that contrary to popular belief, most of the pesticide-ridden pollen bees gather may be from urban landscapes and non-cultivated plants. For 16 weeks, researchers collected pollen from bees at three different sites in Indiana and analyzed it for pesticides. They chose locations with wildflowers, shrubs, and trees to test non-agricultural sites. Then, they tested different sites at the border of maize fields and areas that received chemical treatments, such as the neonicotinoid clothianidin, and finally, areas that received no treatments. The researchers found that bees collected a much larger amount of pollen from the non-cultivated plants than from the food crops, and that the samples from these uncultivated areas also contained a larger amount of pesticides. This suggests that pesticide exposure for bees in non-agricultural sites may be higher than previously thought, and they found that the pyrethroid insecticides commonly used by homeowners to kill pests like mosquitoes were present in the largest quantities and also likely caused the most harm to bees. The scientists note that these results provide important information on bee foraging habits and bee hazards, along with tips gardeners might consider when treating their yards. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jay Feinstein. Honeybees make a $20 billion contribution to U.S. agriculture, according to the American Beekeeping Foundation, but they're by no means the only bee that helps feed us. There's one particular wild pollinator that follows human activity. The squash bee moved beyond its native range in the Americas as people spread the cultivation of indigenous squashes. Margarita Lopez Uribe studies evolutionary biology at North Carolina State University and co-authored the paper laying out this connection. She joins us from her lab. Margarita, welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, thank you. What are we really talking about when we say the squash bee? How different are these bees from the familiar honeybee? Well, they are very different. There are about 20,000 species of bees in the world, and the honeybee is only one of them. So when we're talking about the squash bees, actually there are about 20 species that specialize in squash pollination. And the one that I focused on is only one of those 20, and it's called Peponapis prinosa. And what does it look like? The bee is about the size of a honeybee, but it looks a little bit different to someone that has, you know, like a trained eye. And one of the big differences morphologically is that the honeybee collects the pollen in a structure in the hind legs. It's called a corbiculae, and it's basically a basket. So the honeybees visit the flowers, they collect the pollen, they put a little bit of nectar in the pollen, and then they make these wet balls of pollen that they 
store in those uh, baskets in the hind legs. The squash bee does not have that basket. It has this incredibly long and very conspicuous hairs in the hind legs. And so the pollen gets actually stuck in those hairs. And one of the features of the squash pollen is that it has very large grains of pollen, so it easily gets attached to those hairs in the hind legs. Now, tell me the crops that they pollinate for humans. When you say squash, what are we talking about here? Well, they specialize on pollination of one plant genus, the genus Cucurbita. And that plant genus happens to actually be the genus of a lot of different crops. So we are talking about a squash, pumpkin, zucchini, all of those crops are actually part of the genus, the plant genus Cucurbita, and they are all pollinated by these squash bees. What's neat about your paper is that you figured out that bees spread their range thanks to the cultivation of squash. What prompted you to look at this? Well, so if you look at the distribution of the bee today, for a big chunk of their distribution, they are only co-distributed with plants that are domesticated by humans. And so we already predicted that the bee had expanded its range outside of the ancestral range of the plants that were not domesticated by humans. What I did was I looked at genetic markers to actually see if there were signatures at the genetic level that could corroborate these uh, hypotheses that we had. And that's what we found, that indeed, these bee expanded its range dramatically thanks to the cultivation of these crops outside of the native range of the plants that are not domesticated. What surprised you most about your findings? Well, there were a couple of things that were very interesting. One thing was the route of the movements of the bees. So these bees are very, very abundant in northeastern North America. One possible way they got there was actually kind of, you know, like along the east coast of North America. But actually what I found is that the bees moved through the Midwest and then colonized the northeast of North America. So they kind of, you know, like took the longer route to get there. The other interesting finding was even though this was a rapid expansion, we did find strong signatures of severe bottlenecks. What happens is that even though these bees have been in Eastern North America for quite a while, we're talking about thousands of, of generations, they still show very low genetic variability. This is interesting and it's something that I'm really curious to keep investigating because what I hypothesize is that the fact that these bees are so tightly associated with crop management and, and agricultural systems, that means that probably there is something that we're doing with the crops that these bees are relying on that is keeping the genetic variability of these populations extremely, extremely low. And that would make them really vulnerable to changes in the environment. You term these bees as being solitary, but of course, how do they reproduce then? Well, the life cycle is very different. So what happens is, as I told you, these bees nest underground and they have a yearly life cycle. Usually by midsummer, the females and males emerge from the ground. They mate, all females are, are fertile. And then the females, once they have mated, they start looking for areas where they can make their own nest. Once they find a good spot, they make the nest and they start collecting pollen and nectar. They lay eggs. 
they close those nests and then they never see their babies. They die that summer and then the next year, those eggs, of course, go through the whole development and adults emerge and the cycle starts again. I imagine that if they build their nests in the ground, it's close to the plants, what happens when the plows come through? <laughs> yeah, that, so that's that's one of the things that I'm worried about and that I think it's probably driving some of these low genetic diversity in the populations is the fact that the agricultural systems of squashes and pumpkins actually include what we call crop rotation and soil tillage. And so I think a, a large number of these individuals just dies every year as a result of these agricultural practice. So if I understand this, uh, honeybees can also pollinate squash. So what's the difference here? Well, there are major differences. One of them is the time of the day that these bees forage. So Peponapis prinosa is a very early morning bee. When I was doing field work for this study, I would have to get up really, really early because most of the foraging happens the first one or two hours of the day. Honeybees and other pollinators of these crops, uh, like bumblebees, they usually pollinate later in the day and for much longer. The other difference, and, and this is something that we don't really know much about, is there seems to be that the pollen of these crops has some chemical properties that make the pollen highly unattractive to most bees. Peponapis prinosa pollinates squashes and pumpkins because the female bees are collecting the pollen. And so in the movement between the flowers, they are uh, transferring pollen grains between flowers. The honeybee goes to the flowers only for the nectar. And so it's a much less specialized, you know, like behavior in terms of the foraging. We know a lot about the honeybee, but very, very little, almost nothing about the other thousands of species of bees in this planet. Margarita Lopez Uribe is a postdoc researcher at North Carolina State University. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. When you set off for that summer road trip, take a good look at the medians and roadsides. All those miles of broad green highway rights of way turn out to be vital habitats for many small critters, as well as pollinators including bees, butterflies, and birds. Bonnie Harper-Lore was a restoration ecologist for the Federal Highway Administration and a member of the Commission on Minnesota Resources. Welcome to Living on Earth, Bonnie. Greetings, Steve. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us today. Now, we're talking about those strips of vegetation along the highways. There's often commercial or residential property right behind them. So uh, nationwide, just how much of this habitat is there? Well, I think the listeners will be surprised to find out that the area between the pavement and the right-of-way fence on county, state, and interstate highways adds up to a total of 17 million acres, possibly wow. millions of acres of conservation opportunity. You know, recently we saw National Pollinator Week, which was a time to celebrate the pollinators, spread the words about what people can do to protect them. So what do we have to celebrate in terms of roadside habitat for pollinators now? Well, the fact that it's a news item at all is something I'm celebrating because I always saw roadsides from the beginning of my career 30 years ago as an opportunity to benefit wildlife, small wildlife, small birds, small mammals, and migrating birds also use these same corridors. So if they have places to find food and cover, they are all going to do better and their populations will 
continue to, to hold where we need them to hold. By the way, I also understand that this roadside habitat has some of the most endangered habitat in various areas, like there are parts of the original prairie that are protected along side roads, sort of by accident. You can sometimes find real old-growth trees. I mean, how much of a treasure trove is this territory? Well, that's just it. We don't have a complete inventory of all of our roadside vegetation. I would indeed like to see that happen because I think we would be surprised at how many remnants of these old forests, old prairies, old wetlands even do exist. We began doing a bit of that inventory in on 1993 in California found 19 remnants within a very short time and began protecting them, uh, managing differently, not mowing and spraying as they had in the past. So there are some of these, I mean, it's surprising that they do exist. I know Florida has also some endangered, I believe, pitcher plants that are growing in their rights of ways, and they are now watching over them differently than they have in the past. So if we know they're there, we can do differently. So, um, Give us the big picture as to who are the partners in these pollinator conservation efforts. Well, there were actually a few states that were doing pollinator-focused efforts. Wisconsin comes to mind in that the Carner blue butterfly is an endangered species, and they actually put together, I believe, a 20-member partnership quite a few years ago to protect the Carner Blue. And that partnership was mostly private sector, but some state and county agencies too. And they've done a great deal to keep the Carner Blue safe in Wisconsin. So those kinds of things have happened individually, but you have to realize every state Department of Transportation basically does its own thing, makes its own priorities. But now, now that There's been a White House task force. There has been a pollinator-enhancing bill, a reauthorization act that actually supports pollinators. All of the states will start moving in that direction, especially if they know the public is interested. So public support needs to be there. Yeah, Tell me about the multi-state project known as the I-35 corridor and what's been done in terms of monarch protection there. Well, ironically, back in 1993, a group of six states asked the Federal Highway Administration, where I worked at the time, to work together and get some funding to support their effort to actually restore prairie along the I-35 corridor and to protect any remnants that already existed there. And remind us where the I-35 corridor is. It runs from Minnesota through Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas, therefore connecting Mexico to the edge of Canada. And of course, that's where the monarchs fly. What other wildlife uses this roadside habitat? You know, you often see hawks uh, hanging out there. Uh, The hunting must be pretty good for them, I guess, huh? It certainly is. I watch hawks, all kinds of raptors, sitting on uh, the uh, light standards along highways and signposts, just waiting for lunch to uh, materialize down there in the vegetation on the roadside. Yes, they do well there because there are lots of mice and voles, other small things possible. Plus one that actually motivated reduced mowing here in the Midwest, pheasants and other waterfall, different kinds of ducks will nest in these rights of ways. So it's amazing when you're screaming by at 55 to 70 miles an hour, what's happening out on that green strip that you probably will never, ever imagine. The uh, Lady Bird Johnson, 
you know, first lady during uh, the Lyndon Johnson administration. Her signature cause was uh, highway beautification back there in the 60s. What kind of impact, what kind of lasting impact has her work had on roadside habitat and pollinators, do you think? Well, I smiled because it's because of Lady Bird Johnson that my job even existed with the Federal Highway Administration. I was working uh, for the Minnesota Department of Transportation establishing their wildflower program back in the 1980s when I got an invitation from Mrs. Johnson to come visit with four other states uh, who were also interested in planting wildflowers. And we sat and talked to her for two days And the thing we didn't know she would do, because she asked us, what did we need to be able to do more? Within that same year, she saw to it that there was an amendment to the transportation bill that requires all states to use a certain percent, not a large enough percent, but a certain percent of their budgets on native wildflowers. So a few years later, I was looking for a job and I talked to the people I'd met at Lady Bird Johnson's, and they said, well, there's an opening in Washington. And within a few months, I was able to be in charge of the National Wildflower Program. Thanks to her, we've come some distance. I've had people write me with their thank yous for the wildflower program over time. One of them was an 18-wheel truck driver who said, thank you for the wildflower program. I drive from coast to coast, and it helps me gives me something to look at and keep me alert and awake. And it was like, what a surprising thank you letter that was. And there are others, too. I have a file full of them. Bonnie Harper-Lore served in the Federal Highway Administration as a restoration ecologist. She's now with the Commission on Minnesota Resources. Bonnie, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for what you do. Coming up, seed saving on a super scale. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Time now to dive into a breathtaking and beautiful book that chronicles a profound and visionary investment of hope. It's called Seeds on Ice. There are not many words, but plenty of pictures that explain the thinking and work that created the Global Seed Vault at Svalbard, Norway. Author Carrie Fowler spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Carrie Fowler, you are the father of the Global Seed Vault. First of all, tell me what exactly this Global Seed Vault is. The Global Seed Vault, the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, is a backup insurance policy for all the seed banks around the world. And the idea is that we wanted to provide fail-safe protection for the diversity of our agricultural crops, diversity that's stored in the form of seeds. You need cold temperatures, freezing temperatures to conserve seeds long-term. So we went close to the North Pole where it's very cold and we built a facility inside of a mountain, which makes it also very secure. And there we're storing backup copies, seed samples of currently more than 850,000 different crop varieties. There are already national collections, as you've said, and seed vaults. Why do we need a backup? We need a backup because bad things happen to seed banks. And there's so many examples of this that are catastrophic at a local or national level. There's been a fire and a flood inside the Philippine National Gene Bank. The Iraqi and Afghanistani gene banks were destroyed or at least very much harmed by the wars there. 
seed banks, in a way, are a little bit like libraries, and every once in a while something bad happens to an individual book in a library, and likewise, even in a really great seed bank, something bad will happen to a particular sample just by accident or mismanagement. And every time something bad happens like that, we lose that variety. In other words, it's an extinction event. We don't talk about saving a representative sample of Rembrandts and Goyas. We'd like to save them all. And ditto with agricultural plant diversity. We want to save all of that diversity. They're all treasures. You point out that Norway is the ideal country both to host this and indeed has the ideal place to put it and is accepted by the international community as an honest broker. Why is that so? Norway has always played a really positive role in international discussions and debates, frankly, about how to conserve this material and how to exchange it between countries. It's a fairly contentious issue, believe it or not, and countries are formulating rules about how to and under what circumstances and conditions to exchange crop diversity. No country on earth has the requisite amount of crop diversity to fuel their own plant breeding programs into the future, and that includes the United States. So every country on earth is dependent on other countries or interdependent with the globe to secure the biological foundation of its own agricultural system. So Norway has played a great and positive role in that, and Norway provided the perfect conditions, and not coincidentally, it also provided the funding for it, and we needed that. So tell me about Svalbard. Where is it and what is it exactly? Svalbard is a, a group of islands. And if you look at a map or you, you have a globe handy, you go to the North Pole and look just a little bit southward. So if you were in Oslo, Norway, which most people think of as far north, you would need to fly about 1,300 miles north of there to get to Svalbard. The seed vault itself is located at 78 degrees north. And it's the farthest north that you can fly on a regularly scheduled airplane, albeit only about once a day. And it's a remarkably beautiful, exotic, otherworldly place. It can snow on any day of the year. This is an area that's uh, twice the size of Belgium and about 60% covered with glaciers. Still great infrastructure, very safe, secure. It was just the ideal location. It has to be said we're in a, an era of global warming. How safe is Svalbard for global warming? I mean, we hear about glaciers melting all over. Oh, yes. Well, Svalbard is not safe from global warming. No place on earth is. But the idea with the seed vault and with all good seed banks around the world is that you want to freeze the seed down to about minus three or four Fahrenheit, minus 18 Celsius. And there's no place on earth where you can do that naturally without mechanical cooling. So the challenge then is simply to find a place that gives you uh, naturally cold temperatures, as cold as you can get. And from there, you have to lower it a little bit further. So that's what we have in Svalbard. And in the permafrost, we built a tunnel that goes about 130 meters into the mountain. It's a bit below freezing there. It's uh, about minus five Celsius. And so even at that temperature, if our mechanical freezing were to fail, it would take months and months and months for that facility to warm up to something still below freezing. And even at that rate, we calculate the seeds would be safe for decades. So we'd have a long time to fix the problem. There's one kind of irony 
and that is that the cooling that you have in the vault is actually powered by coal. And one of the problems we've got, of course, is global warming and coal is one of the dirtiest fossil fuels we've got. Did this ever come up as an issue? Well, we have to power the facility in some way. It doesn't take much. We don't have a big electricity bill. And there is a village up there that has to be powered and electrified, of course. And coal is local. It's locally mined. So, you know, we're not shipping oil over the ocean to power that facility. And in a place like that, where you have three months of polar night every year, it would be pretty hard to run it solar. (laughs) I looked at the pictures in the book, and they are stunning. I mean, it's very bleak and large and colorful and lots of northern lights and lots of polar bears and not many people. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. There are, I think, more polar bears than people and certainly more reindeer up there than people. And when you're up there, particularly if you leave the little village, you will have, I think, an emotional experience that few people on earth have these days. And that's an experience that comes from being untethered to civilization. And you realize you're really out there. You get a pretty profound feeling that you're on your own (laughs) and that nature is in control and that nature is a little bit bigger and more powerful than we are individually. It'll have quite an impact on you. So you've got this vault at the end of a 300-foot tunnel, more or less. What exactly is it? What does it consist of? At the end of the tunnel, we have three vault rooms, and each vault room is, um, well, about 30 meters long, 10 meters wide, and 5 meters high. And we're only storing seeds in one of those vault rooms. Everything about the seed vault has a lot of built-in redundancy, so... I did some calculations about how much uh, space we would need to store all of the agricultural seed diversity in the world. And we have about three times as much storage space as my estimates indicated we would need because, well, I could be wrong. And when you walk into this final chamber, it's extremely cold and it looks a little bit like a warehouse, frankly. We have shelves and we have boxes in the shelves and each box contains about four or five hundred seed samples. They're all in individual packets and about 500 seeds per packet. So currently, I think we have about 500 million seeds down there, quite a few tons. And the boxes, they're pretty. They come from countries all over the world and they have the little insignias on it. And when you walk down the aisles, you have to walk down the aisles with some humility because what you're seeing is the results of agricultural evolution over the last 15,000 years. It's essentially a biological history of agriculture, but it's also everything that agriculture can be in the future is represented in that diversity. Has every country bought into the idea of the need to preserve this seed heritage? Well, the seed fault has seeds that are sourced from just about every country in the world, including some countries that no longer exist. But that doesn't mean that every institution in every country has participated yet. And I think eventually they will. One of the other aspects of the management plan that we had to work out was a question about property rights. Who owns these seeds? So the way that we set up the seed vault was that it would function like a safety deposit box at the bank where Norway owns the facility itself. In other words, it owns the mountain. But the individual depositor would own their seed deposits themselves. And they and only they would have access to those seed deposits. So 
We don't send the United States collection to Canada or vice versa or whatever. But some countries simply take longer than others to come around to that idea and to work through the bureaucracy. So I'm not too worried about that. But I think we have a fairly good sample of the diversity in the world. I mean, we're looking at more than 150,000 different types of rice and more than 150,000 different kinds of wheat, and I think about 35,000 different bean varieties, and on and on. So why do you need 150,000 varieties of wheat or rice? We need that kind of diversity because we don't have a crystal ball about what the future will bring. We know that there are always surprises that agricultural crops, they're evolving, as are the pests and diseases that strike them. And with global warming, we're seeing uh, the natural range of pests and diseases change, and so new assemblages of species are coming into being, and we don't know how crops are going to react to that. And human beings change their tastes, and the food industry changes its requirements over time, and all of that means that we need different traits. And so this diversity is a little bit like an artist's palette. We want as many colors as possible so that we can create new paintings. And every time you take away a color, every time you take away diversity, you limit your options. And there have been cases in our lifetime where we've had to search the entire collection of a particular crop and have only been able to find one variety containing particular genes, in other words, traits, that are needed to essentially rescue the crop. Some people would argue that science has been able to breed new varieties. You don't think science could be the answer here? You think we need nature? Oh, I love science, and I have a lot of respect for it. And this diversity is used by scientists every day, both in basic biological research, but also traditional plant breeding. But we're not gods, and not only are the individual genes traits important, but I think we're in the future we're going to learn a lot and benefit a lot from understanding the combinations of traits that have been assembled by our ancestors. Our diverse, our old heirloom varieties of grains and fruits and vegetables and such are the result of countless evolutionary experiments, and they are the successful results of those experiments. So we have much to learn, and I don't think we're going to have a substitute for this diversity anytime soon. How much genetic variety have we actually lost? I don't know how much variety, diversity we've lost because, frankly, we never had a head count on it to begin with. We do have some records, at least in reasonably modern times. If you go back to the 1800s, the U.S. Department of Agriculture was essentially doing a census of the varieties of fruits and vegetables that were grown by American farmers. And we know we've lost a great deal of those varieties I would make a distinction that varieties and diversity aren't quite the same thing because you can have a trait that appears in more than one variety of apple, for example. So losing a variety of apple doesn't mean you've lost that trait necessarily. But in some cases, of course, it would. Are you still collecting? Are there any other seeds you'd really like to get? Absolutely. There's always more diversity out there. Diversity is cropping up all the time, so this task will never really end. We'd like to get more of the wild relatives of our domesticated crops. They're pretty tough plants, and 
in a situation where the weather is bad or there's global warming, those kind of traits are really interesting and, and useful for agriculture. Some of the very minor crops, we don't have good collections of some of those, so I'd like to add to those. And there are a few countries that haven't participated in the seed vault yet. It doesn't mean that we don't have seeds that were collected by other institutions in those countries, but we don't have those countries' collections as well. So we want to add China and India and Ethiopia, Iran to that list, of course. When you say minor crops, what are you talking about? Some of the vegetables, for instance, there's a whole category of African leafy vegetables. There are minor crops that you probably never would have heard of. I mean, bastard cabbage and Mormon tea and love lies bleeding and cheesy toes. Maybe these are forage crops, but these are exotic names and I don't really know much about those as well, but we could use some more diversity of things like that. How long will the seeds stay viable in the vault? It depends on the species. At the short end, some species would be fine for maybe 7,500 years or more. Our major grain crops, if you look at rice or wheat, barley, those should be viable somewhere between one and 2,000 years from now. Sorghum, we estimate, would be viable more than 19,000 years from now. Having said that, I would add that this is not a time capsule. So yes, eventually, even if eventually is 2,000 years from now, the seed will lose its ability to germinate. But what we've tried to do with the seed vault is to establish a facility whose conservation standards are equal to or better than any of the depositing institutions. So in other words, the seeds in the seed vault will decline in their germinability no more quickly than those in, in the best seed banks around the world. And, and those seed banks monitor their seed supplies all the time. So when they see that a seed sample is declining in its viability, they will take some seeds out, grow them in the real world, multiply them. And when they do that, they'll send more seed to the seed vault. It's a living facility and we'll always have seed coming in. So it's constantly being replaced, as it were. Does it also work as a kind of lending library of seeds? That's a good analogy. It is a library, but the lending library portion of it really is up to the depositing institutions. It's pretty impractical to go to the North Pole or Svalbard to get seeds if you need them for a research project or plant breeding. So you would go to the normal National Seed Bank or one of the international research centers to get the seeds directly there. This is the backup. This is the insurance policy for, for all of those. But mostly we built the facility not thinking about doomsday or anything like that. That word doesn't appear in any of the planning documents. We built it because doomsday really occurs on an almost daily basis in one of the hundreds of seed banks around the world where they're losing a sample here or there. And that might be the sample that not just that country, but all of humanity needs for that particular crop. By the way, we have had our first withdrawal of seeds, and that was a, both a sad and a happy occasion. It was sad that the withdrawal needed to take place. It was happy that we had the backup copy, so the collection in, in question wasn't lost. So who needed to withdraw seeds? There was a wonderful international institution located outside of Aleppo, Syria, with the acronym ICARDA, the International Center for Agricultural Research in Dry Areas. 
This was not a Syrian facility. It was an international facility, and they specialized in conserving and breeding wheat, barley, lentils, chickpea, and a wonderful little crop called grass pea or lathyrus. Major suppliers for farmers in that region, particularly working on drought-tolerant varieties, which are, of course, very important, and food security in the Mideast is of global importance. So when the war came to Syria, the researchers had to abandon their research station. But fortunately, we had anticipated that there might be a problem, and we worked with that institute to, to get a spare copy of all of their seed samples out of Syria and up to the Svalbard Global Seed Vault before the fighting really started. And they reestablished their center in Morocco and Lebanon, and of course, they don't have access to the seed bank in Syria anymore, so they really needed to start to get their seed supplies back. And we shipped them back in September 2015, and they will multiply those seeds, and they'll start to use them again in their own research project. And then, as you can imagine, they will be rather highly motivated to send us a copy back again. <laughs> That's Kerry Fowler, author of Seeds on Ice, Svalbard and the Global Seed Vault, talking with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Kerry Fowler insists Svalbard is not a doomsday vault. And though there was a scare in October of 2016 when unusually heavy rains and high temperatures resulted in meltwater leaking into the outer tunnel, the Norwegian government says none of the seeds were ever at risk. We leave you this week with sounds of the Earth. These are Earth sounds, as you've probably never heard them, sped up 10,000 times and transposed up about 13 octaves. The sounds come from seismic recording stations in North America and Central Asia. The frog-like burps you can hear are earthquakes, large ones followed by the chirps of aftershocks. John Bullitt created this unusual soundscape of our solid, restless planet for the CD Earth Sound. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Matt Hoish, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Helen Palmer, Olivia Reardon, Rebecca Riedelmeyer, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger and Jake Rigo engineered our show. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.